All right, well, welcome to Living Hope Church, and welcome to those of you joining us online. Uh, today we are continuing in our Easter series that we have titled Journey to Jerusalem. Uh, and for the last few weeks, we've been journeying with Jesus towards Jerusalem. He travels there uh, with intentionality to give his life for me and you. During this series, we've been looking at the conversations he had and the people he met along his way. Well, if you looked at a calendar today or even your phone, it likely had a notification telling you that today is Palm Sunday. Uh, and Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem. He arrives there to give his life for the sins of the world. But Palm Sunday is such an interesting day. Because Palm Sunday, Jesus is met in Jerusalem with applause, with palm branches in a celebration. The people of, other, of Jerusalem didn't understand what Jesus' purpose was and what he was entering the city to do. Some of them believed he was going to be a conquering Messiah and that he had come to give them freedom from Rome. Others believed he was just a great preacher or a great teacher or a great prophet or a miracle worker. So they gathered to celebrate him. Yet when he didn't meet their expectations, we'll see that many of the people in the same crowd that praised him on Palm Sunday would shout crucify and be a part of the mob that would have him killed five days later. So anytime that I think about Palm Sunday or I come to Palm Sunday, I wrestle with that question, who do I believe that Jesus is and what is my response to him? Like the crowd, there are many in our world that will dismiss Jesus as a good teacher, as just one of many religious leaders as a myth, as something else. And when we treat Jesus like that, we can celebrate him as a pretty good guy. But the problem is, Jesus didn't claim to be any of those things. Jesus came and he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah. And it was that claim that angered the crowd on that day, and it is that claim, that truth, that we still wrestle with today. So for the message, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to wrestle with who Jesus said he was, and then what is our response to Jesus? We're going to do this through one of his final conversations with a man named Pilate, and then we're going to see our faith story in the life of a man named Barabbas. So we're in Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26. Matthew writes, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus, Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they all shouted louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, as we walk through this series, Lord, we are so thankful and just uh, I, I am amazed at Jesus' faithful, uh, just intentionality to go to the cross on our behalf. It wasn't a series of accidents. It wasn't just coincidences, but he willingly went to the cross to lay down his life for our sins, for my sins. And Lord, we give thanks to you for that. God, I pray that as we look at this message and this passage, Lord, that you would just uh, open our eyes to, to, any, uh, to, to the need that we have for you. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that you would open their eyes and their heart to their need for you. And God, for, for many who have been followers of Jesus for, for years, God, would you just help us to reflect and leave in awe of your goodness and the grace that you've shown us. God, we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. So to begin, let me provide just a little bit of context for this conversation. Uh, if you're familiar with the Easter uh, timeline, this trial happens after Jesus has been arrested in the garden. And by the time that Jesus arrives in front of Pontius Pilate, the governor, he has already appeared before three different religious courts. He's appeared before Annas, the former high priest, Caiaphas, the current high priest, and the Sanhedrin, or the governing body of the Jews. And these religious courts have found Jesus guilty on the count of blasphemy, or the count of claiming to be God. But the religious courts, they don't have the capability to just have Jesus executed. So the Jewish leaders then take Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor, in a continued effort to have him killed. And so if you remember the time, like Jesus is going to have to be killed by dusk on Friday night. So this is happening uh, likely early Friday morning. Jesus is hours from going to the cross when this trial, this conversation occurs with Pilate. So the Jewish religious courts, they find him guilty of blasphemy, but they know that Pilate's not going to care about that. So they trump up charges of treason, of insurrection, of being a rival king and a threat to Caesar. Pilate didn't care about blasphemy, but he did care about peace in his province, and he did care about keeping his job. Historian Josephus tells us that Pilate's job was in jeopardy at this time uh, when the trial happens. And if chaos were to break out, it could have cost him his job or worse, his life. You see, when Pilate took over as governor of Judea and Samaria, one of the first things he did was he wanted to make the city Roman. And so he brought in all these images of the governor and he placed them all over the holy city. He then seized the money in the temple treasury to build a, an aqueduct in the city. And these two events enraged the Jews. In addition to this, Pilate ambushed the Jewish rebels and he had many of them killed as they opposed his leadership. So the Jews, they, instead of taking their complaints to Pilate, they went around him to his boss and so Pilate was under pressure. He was, in a, he was on a short rope because of all this controversy. In addition to Pilate's troubles, it was the Passover festival. So the population of Jerusalem is swollen at this time. Historians tell us that during the festivals, the population of Jerusalem would quintuple in size. So during these festivals, Pilate and the government, they were constantly on the lookout for any sort of trouble that these Jews might be causing. Or any way they might be trying to overthrow their rule. Pilate's job was to keep things calm and under control in Jerusalem, and he knew that would be tested during the Passover festival. The great preacher W.A. Criswell described Pilate like this. He said he was a man without dedication to justice. He lived in a world of self-serving self-interest. Whatever ministered to the fortune of Pilate was what he chose to do. Even though he was the ruler of the people and supposed to stand for justice in the name of the Roman Empire, Tiberius Caesar, the Roman Empire, had two things he demanded of his governors. One, the proper receipt of taxes, and second, that the provinces be quiet and secure. 
Pilate had failed to keep his province quiet and secure, and the Jews knew they had leverage, some dirt on him when they bring Jesus before him. And so that's, that's kind of where Pilate is as we address the charges in verse 11. It says, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, You have said so. Pilate has this mess dumped into his lap. He's left to weed through the information, the emotion, the political pressures of the day. But ultimately, he's left with a decision. And that decision is, what is he going to do with Jesus? And it's that same question, that same decision that each of us has to decide still today. We have to decide, what will we do with Jesus? Will we ignore him? Will we rebel against him? Or will we fall down on our face and worship him as Lord? So that's our first point today. What will I do with Jesus? Pilate has presented the information. Jesus answers his question. He says, uh, if you say so, I am. And he's left to make a decision. If you read the Luke 23 account of Jesus' trial before Pilate, on three different occasions, Pilate says to the Jewish leaders, what crime has this man committed? Or I have found no basis for the charges you have brought before me. So on three occasions, Pilate says, I don't think this man is guilty. It would seem that in his heart, he knows that Jesus is not guilty, yet he still has to make a decision. That's us. We like Pilate. We have to make a decision. We can't just ignore Jesus. Because throughout Jesus' life, he very clearly claims to be the Son of God. The Bible tells us he lived a sinless life and he died for the sins of the world. History quite clearly tells us that he lived and was a real person. So each of us has to make a decision about Jesus, who he was and what our relationship will be to him. Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he was? Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? Have you put your faith in him? Or are you still unsure and need some time to figure out who he is? And what to do with his claims. For Pilate, he didn't have the luxury of time. He was pressed to make a decision. Pilate seemed to have an understanding that Jesus was innocent and had done nothing wrong except upset the Jewish rulers. But he either couldn't or he wouldn't make a decision. And he didn't stand up for what he believed was right. So the next thing we see in Pilate's story is that indecision is a decision. And it's a decision to condemn Jesus. So point two today is indecision is a decision to not believe. We see this so often, uh, even in our world today. The easiest thing to do with Jesus is just to ignore him or, or pass him off as another religious teacher and to remain, remain neutral on him. That was the crowd on Palm Sunday. They celebrated Jesus because they put him in a box in their minds. He was what they wanted him to be. But we don't get to define who Jesus is. Jesus himself says neutrality isn't an option. And he makes it quite clear who he is. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a, that's a strong statement and a tough verse in our world of no absolute truth and, and the mentality of you do what's best for you. But Jesus doesn't claim to be a way. He says, I am the only way. And so we have to wrestle with those words and decide what is it we are going to do with him and recognize that indecision with Jesus is a decision against him. He says that in Matthew twelve thirty. While talking to the Pharisees and Jewish religious leaders, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Indecision is a decision. And we see that in Jesus' words here, and we see that in the life of Pilate as well. To choose to not follow Jesus is to choose the alternative, which is to oppose him. We must choose. I've shared this quote with you before I know, and it's one of my favorite quotes C.S. Lewis said of, of Jesus in our response to him, 
He wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying that really foolish thing that people say about Jesus. People say, I am ready to accept that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You have to make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he was a madman or something worse. Lewis says you can shut Jesus up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his face, fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. I love that quote because it so clearly communicates the decision that we have to make. We don't get to define who Jesus was. We can't just say he was a good guy and pass him off. That's what the rich young ruler did. He, he called Jesus a good teacher. He didn't believe that Jesus was God. and He never submitted his life and followed him. That led him to walk off, shaking his head without eternal life. That we saw contrasted with Zacchaeus last week who believed that Jesus was who he said he was and he surrendered all he had to follow him. And to that, Jesus said salvation, eternal life had come to Zacchaeus. There is no middle ground. We have to take seriously Jesus' claims about himself. He is either our Savior, our Messiah, and we submit all we have to follow him, or we deem him a liar and we go our own way without his promise of salvation and eternal life. Lewis clearly communicates there's no middle ground with Jesus. He's either God or a lunatic or a liar. And as hearers of the word, we must make a decision. Will we follow him and call him Lord of our lives, or will we go our own way believing him a fool or a liar? So the question we're left with is, what will you do with Jesus? Let's go back to Pilate as he wrestles with his decision. When we understand kind of the background uh, of Pilate, we, we get a little understanding uh, and, and some compassion for the tough spot he's in. If he stands up for what he believes is the truth, that Jesus is innocent, he faces some real world problems in the immediate. A decision to believe Jesus could mean political, social, and career suicide. But at the same time, he seems to know what is right and, and what he should do, but he can't muster the courage to do it. His lack of courage and inability to do what is right will leave him one of the most famous men in world history. But not for what he did right, but instead for condemning the Son of God. But we can sympathize with that a little bit, I think. We've all been in those situations where we know what is right, but we also know what is easiest and what's going to cause the least problems and what's going to ruffle the least feathers and, and what just might pass the decision on to someone else. And the temptation there, I think, is always to take the route that is easiest in the immediate. But that's where our integrity is tested. Will we stand up for what we know to be right or will we pass it off to someone else? That's Pilate's situation. But remember, indecision for Pilate is a decision. It's a decision for us in those difficult times. This is kind of a, a, a practical sub-point here, but what, what are some things we can do when we find ourselves in Pilate's shoes? Those times when we know what is right as Christians, but we also know the opposition, the struggle is very real. Those times that doing the right thing might cause relational conflict or financial difficulty or make more work for ourselves, what do we do then? Well, one of the best places to turn for advice on these sort of things is Proverbs and Proverbs 12, 15 uh, gives us some advice. It says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Proverbs 19, 20 says, Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. 
Proverbs 15, 31 says, He whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. There's a common theme in each of these verses. In times of, of high, uh, high questions or we don't know what to do or we don't know if we should trust our gut, the proverb says, seek counsel. But don't just seek counsel, listen to it as well. We saw that Pilate gets this opportunity in the midst of the chaos of his day. Verse 19, it says, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Think about what it took for his wife to get this message to him. She, she knew how important her husband was. She knew how crazy his day was, but she feels so strongly about Jesus and this dream that she sends word to him saying she believes Jesus is innocent and, and don't have anything to do with him. So Pilate knows in his heart, or seems to know in his heart, that Jesus is innocent. He's been advised by counsel by his wife that he is innocent. But will he listen to this advice? And as you read this passage, you can almost feel Pilate trying to pause and to take some time to figure this out. But then verse 20 comes, and it says the chief priests and elders, they persuaded, or, or other versions say like they, they, they got the crowd in a fury, and they begin to ask for Barabbas. And to have Jesus executed. You almost sense him trying to pause and think, but the religious leaders incite the crowd and they make, they make him give a decision in the moment. Pilate was the governor. He could have told them he was taking a day to make his decision. He could have said, I'm taking a weekend or a week. Often in life, when we have to make big decisions, we feel like we have to make them now, in the moment. But often we feel pressure that is beyond what is real. Often we can slow down. We can press pause. We can take some time to seek scripture to seek counsel, to pray for the right decision to make. So when you're faced with those tough decisions, the decisions of integrity, try to pause and seek the Lord and to seek counsel and then listen. Pilate received counsel. I think he, in his heart, knew what was the right thing to do, yet he is overwhelmed by the pressure of the crowd. He's overwhelmed by the immediate consequences. And so he just goes with the crowd. He goes with the flow. Daryl Bach said this, a Pilate in his commentary on Luke. He said, Pilate can never know but the apparently insignificant ex-prefect that he was, his name would eventually be the most familiar name in all of Roman history. For uncounted masses in future ages who knew little about Caesar or Augustus or Nero, they would have confessed the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pilate's infamous act of ordering Jesus' execution was carried out in the political backwaters of first century Palestine. His actions were conducted in relative obscurity with no thought that they would have historical or spiritual consequences for all of humanity. But Pilate is known forever as the one whose political motives perverted his integrity. Our decisions matter, no matter how insignificant we believe them to be. And the pressure of the crowd here, the, 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 this mob, is such a fascinating element to me. We talked about it in the intro, but less than a week earlier, the crowd bowed down and they worshiped Jesus as the king. And now five days later, they are chanting, crucify, crucify, crucify. The crowd was fickle. They were emotionally driven. They were easily persuaded. They lacked conviction. They were followers of religion and not Jesus. Nobody stood up for what was right. But we, we, we often face those same pressures today to believe as the crowd believes. Think about it, throughout, throughout history, Christianity, its beliefs and its followers have operated in the minority, in the margins of society. 
It has been the exception as opposed to the norm that a biblical worldview has been the majority or driving worldview in a nation. In America, for the past 200 years, we have been blessed to live in a nation where a biblical worldview was at times the majority, or at the very least, an influential presence in our nation's conscience. Now, I'm not trying to make a political statement, but the reality is a biblical worldview is quickly slipping from the mainstream to the margins in America. Oral Roberts is a Christian university that's made a run to the Sweet 16 in the NCAA tournament, if you've been watching it at all. But if you Google Oral Roberts, nearly every article on their basketball team also includes a condemnation of their biblical worldview, calling their guidelines and policies hateful and out of touch with our progressive modern stances. The reality is that a biblical worldview is no longer the norm in America. It is no longer what the crowd celebrates and follows. And to be honest, that doesn't worry me. Because history shows that when Christians are oppressed, the gospel spreads. It is in the margins that Christianity has flourished throughout history. God is still sovereign no matter what the nation believes. And he will call and accomplish his purposes regardless of what the beliefs of the crowd are. But in America, the crowd, the mob, our society is calling us away from the Bible. And in this culture, it is becoming more and more important for us to know our Bible, to know truth, to know what it is that we believe in. So that when the crowd says go one way, we know where we stand. A few years ago, Nike ran an ad. And I love this advertisement because for me it illustrates this principle of one man knowing the truth, knowing what we need to do in the midst of the mob heading the wrong way. The mob is running one direction and one man knows which way they should be going. But in this case, he knows what's true. But he says, eh, I'll go with the crowd. It was easier for him to go with the populace than to stand for truth. And that's the pressure we face regularly. Will we trust and will we stand for what we know is true? Or will we, like Pilate, and we're going to watch the ad in just a second, like Kevin Hart, just go with the norm and what is easiest? So if, we'll, if I think we have that ad, if we'll play it, and then we'll talk. <laughs> Dramatic new developments in the top story of the day. The world has stopped turning on its axis. I repeat, the world has stopped turning. This is a crisis the likes of which planet Earth has never seen. Top scientists are racing to come up with a solution. Let's go! Let's go! The idea is that the power of the foot will propel the planet back into its proper motion. In a remarkable state of events, ordinary citizens are trying to jumpstart the earth by running in the same direction. Whoa, 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 whoa! What's up? Why's everybody going this way? You sure about that? This incredible effort appears to be our planet's last chance to get moving. Let's go! The Earth is starting to show signs of movement. It's actually working. This, this just in. Everyone is running the wrong way. I repeat, you're running the wrong way. I knew I was right. We got to do the whole thing again. 
I, I love that commercial because it, it's funny, but also because it illustrates that reality of when everyone is going one direction, it is so hard to hold up to our values and what we believe in. Kevin Hart in this ad, he knows what is right, yet when he meets the, the populace, he says, I guess I'll just go with them. And in a world and a culture that value, that's values are not of the Bible, we must know truth and we must let it guide our lives. We are prone to go with the herd when making decisions. And that's why it's so important that we decide what it is we are going to do with Jesus and we follow him wholeheartedly. So that when it gets difficult, when our faith is tested, we are fully rooted in the will and the truth of the Bible and Jesus. Paul in Ephesians 4 says, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will be no longer infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. If we don't want to be like the crowd tossed back and forth by emotion and the loudest voice in our life, then we must become rooted in our faith, fully devoted to Christ through prayer, through the reading of the scripture, and through our love of him. If we today want to not be swayed by popular opinion in the crowd, then we must know and hold fast to the truths of scripture. So that's the crowd and the chief priest have them worked up and they're pressuring Pilate to make a decision. And so Pilate, he comes up, he comes with this great idea. He says, I know this tradition uh, if, I, if I do this, then I can wash my hands of the matter. And so he remembers the custom where they would release one prisoner at the Passover feast. And so Pilate thinks of this notorious prisoner. He thinks of this bad man. He chooses to pit him against Jesus. And he's got to think to himself, surely they're going to pick to release the innocent man, and I can just be done with the situation. Don't we often do that? We try to come up with clever ways to get out of our dilemmas and our trials. It's uh, verse 17. It says, So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they, the Jews, had handed Jesus over to him. And so we're introduced to this man named Barabbas. And we don't know a whole lot about Barabbas other than Matthew tells us he was a notorious prisoner. And Luke, in chapter 23 of Luke, says he was guilty of an insurrection and of murder. So Barabbas is the real deal. He is guilty, he is deserving of being a prisoner, and he is deserving of crucifixion. Which is, of course, contrasted with Jesus, who is accused of similar crimes, but isn't guilty of any of them. In fact, isn't guilty of any sin. So that's, that's the scene, that's the stage. we got Jesus on, on one side, guilty of no crimes and no sin. we got Pilate in the middle and Barabbas on the other side, guilty of murder and insurrection. And so Pilate says to the crowd, who do you want? And the crowd begins to chant, release Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. We want Barabbas. And Pilate's plan backfires, and, and he is forced to release the guilty man. And he's left with the man that he now knows is innocent. Pilate again appeals to the crowd. He says, well, what do I do with Jesus? And they say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Throughout all of it, it says, the Bible tells us that Jesus said, Nothing, which fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53, which says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so did he not open his mouth. He went to the cross silently like a lamb to the slaughter to die on behalf of the sins of the world. Jesus went to the cross as a substitute and a sacrifice for the crowd that chanted crucify. He went to the cross as a substitute for the, for the man who was set free in Barabbas. He went to the cross as a substitute and a sacrifice for me and for you. And so as we read this story, we do see ourselves relating to Pilate to some degree. But the character we best relate to in this story is not Pilate, it's not Jesus, it's Barabbas. In this story, you and I play the role of Barabbas. 
We are guilty of sin. We are deserving of death. Yet Jesus goes to the cross. He pays the penalty for our sins so that we may walk free just like Barabbas walked free. The exchange of Jesus to the cross for Barabbas is a picture of the gospel, a picture of grace that we see in ourselves. And that's our final point. In Jesus, we are Barabbas. We are sinners set free. Barabbas is such a beautiful picture of what Jesus came to do in our lives. Barabbas is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus came to take the penalty, the death that our sin deserves, so that we can walk free like Barabbas. The Bible says we have all sinned. We've all done things that go against God or wrong against God. And Romans 6.23 says the wage or the consequence of that sin is death. But then Romans 6.23 goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are Barabbas. We deserve to pay the price for our sins, but Jesus goes to the cross and dies and takes the punishment we deserve so that we can walk free in his grace and forgiveness. Paul in Romans 5 writes, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died on the cross on your behalf, in your place, so that you may be forgiven. God treated Jesus like Barabbas. He treated Jesus like our sin deserves so that he can treat us like Jesus. We can be forgiven because of Jesus and his sacrifice and his blood shed on the cross. Our salvation, our eternal life is not dependent on us. It's not dependent on our works. It's not dependent on our discipline. It's not dependent on our church attendance. It's not dependent on anything that we can do. But it's fully dependent on what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. That is grace, and that is the good news of the gospel. So we're each left with a decision. Jesus said he was God. He said he was the Messiah. He said that he was the only way to heaven. He went to the cross to die for the sins of the world, which means your sins and my sins. He was resurrected three days later, and he offers you grace, which means if you follow him, you inherit his righteousness, his sinlessness, his life, his forgiveness, as opposed to the death and consequence that our sin deserves. But you have to believe and you have to ask for his forgiveness. So what will you or what have you done with Jesus? Do you believe? Have you surrendered your life to follow him? Have you released your idols because you believe that he is better like we saw Zacchaeus do? Or are you choosing to cling to the things of this world and ignore and discard Jesus as Pilate did? So what will you do with Jesus? We're going to give you a few minutes just to respond and then we're going to have the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a time where we just take a a cracker and some juice and we remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. And so what we'd ask is when we take the Lord's Supper, Melinda's going to come and she's going to play for us. I'm going to pray for us and then you're going to have a few minutes just to sit and to reflect. And then when you're ready, uh, you can come and just grab uh, the elements and take them back to the seat and we'll take them together. Uh, We believe that this is something that is reserved for those that are followers of Jesus. So that's you. Please join us. But as you're sitting in your seat, I would ask you to consider two things. First of all, if you're here and you're not sure if you're a follower of Jesus or not, would you consider his offer of salvation? Consider the fact that he came and he died for your sins because he so loves you. If you've never trusted Jesus in your life, you can do that in your seat right now. Say, Jesus, I, I believe that you are who you said you were. I believe that you came and that you loved me so much that you died for my sins. 
God, I want to believe in you. I want to trust you. I want to make you the Lord of my life. If you surrender your heart and you follow him, the Bible says you will be saved. And for those of us here that have been followers of Jesus, maybe for a long time or a short time, would you just take some time before we take the Lord's Supper just to give thanks and reflect on his grace and his goodness and his death that he died on your behalf? Would you give thanks and just reflect in that grace? And then if there is sin in your life, are there idols that you're clinging to, would you release them to him? So I'm going to pray for us. Melinda will come. And then when you're ready, you can come and take the elements. Dear Lord, we uh, thank you for your willingness to go to the cross and to die on our behalf. And God, I pray that if there is anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, that you would open their eyes and their heart to their need for you. That you would open their eyes and their heart to who you are and the fact that you loved them so much that you went to the cross to die on their behalf. And God, I pray that if there's someone here that, that knows that, Lord, that you would give them the courage to repent today to turn and to follow you with their life, to ask their questions, to investigate who you are, to do whatever it is they need to do to make you Lord of their life. God, I pray for the many who have known you for months or years or decades, God, that you would just help us to just, uh, just stand in awe of your goodness and your glory, that you would remind us afresh of who we were before you and, and the life and the forgiveness that we have in you. And Lord, if there's any sin or if there are any idols that we are clinging to, God, would you reveal those in our hearts and that you will give us the courage to repent and turn back to you. Lord, we love you and we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for this time to reflect on who it is you are. In your name we pray, amen.
All right. Well, again, these are the fancy COVID-approved ones. So uh, if you can just get the top piece of cellophane off, there will be a cracker there. Uh, if you open it all, you're going to be into the juice before you know it. So uh, try and just grab that cracker. All right. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this, uh, just your willingness to go to the cross, that you intentionally and willingly laid down your life on our behalf, that you gave your body as a sacrifice for our sins, Lord. We thank you for that. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Then if you can get the rest. All right. Paul writes, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we thank you uh, just for your, again, for your sacrifice, for your blood that covers our sins, our iniquities. Lord, and that in your, uh, in your death and in your forgiveness, we can be seen as righteous, as, as white as snow in the eyes of God. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness is available to us and to any that will repent and follow you. Yeah, we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.